Move Against Cancer podcast. We are your hosts, Gemma Hillier Moses, Move Charity founder, lover of all things running, travel, and tea. And I'm Lucy Gossage, oncologist, outdoor adventure lover, and 5K UA co founder. I'm Georgie Freeman, lover of exploring new places and the 5K UA manager. The reason we originally set up this podcast was to inspire and support and empower people to move and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. In this podcast, we want to share the stories of ordinary people doing incredible things as they find their own way to move against cancer. Going through cancer treatment can feel incredibly isolating and lonely. There's so much behind every individual cancer journey and so much of it is unseen and often unspoken. We want to explore the ways our guests navigate their way through the unimaginable. And we hope that by doing this, we can provide you with some tips, some tools and some inspiration to make your journey that little bit easier. We'll cover every aspect of living with and after cancer, from physical and psychological well-being, identity, goal setting, mindset, staying active, grief and loss, family and friends, and so much more. We will make you laugh, but we also may make you cry. But we guarantee that you'll take something away from every single episode. So we do really hope that you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome back to the Move Against Cancer podcast. Um, It is Lucy Gossage here. Um, Firstly, thank you so much to everyone who got in touch after listening to Crystal um, in the last episode, who Crystal talked so eloquently about the challenges that she faces living with a facial difference. Crystal, if you had a pound for every everyone who had used the word inspirational to describe you, I think you'd be able to buy yourself a pretty expensive outfit. <laughs> um, now, you may remember, um, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, that back in um, December, we did an episode with three young people, Sophie, Liam and Millie, who had a conversation without an interviewer, just on their own, about their experiences being diagnosed with cancer as young adults. We were blown away by the response to this episode. Um, And I actually said to some medical students afterwards, I said, I think every single medical student should listen to this. You can learn so much more from this um, by listening to people talk themselves about what it's like to go through cancer treatment than it is to sit in a clinic and watch doctors talk to people with cancer. Um, they were amazing. And um, something that came up as a consequence, we said, you know, maybe we should do this again. And something that they wanted to talk about was how little everyone speaks about the impact of cancer on relationships and sex. Now, at a similar time, I came across an article on the BBC featuring another amazing young woman, Caitlin Wilde. Caitlin was just 17 when she was diagnosed with cancer. And in the article, she was talking about how when she finished her treatment, when she was ready to get intimate again, she was just met with pain, discomfort, shame, didn't know how to get help and was almost embarrassed to ask for help. So we reached out to Caitlin and today Caitlin, Sophie, Liam and Millie are being brave enough to discuss the impact of their cancer diagnoses as young people on their relationships, their sex lives and their fertility. I think none of us can quite believe we're doing this episode, um, but they are so brave and um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just in awe of all of them. 
Um, now, we're really lucky to be joined by Angela Gregory, who is a psychosexual therapist at Nottingham University Hospital. Angela is going to listen to the four, four of them chatting, and Angela is then going to reflect and problem solve with them. I'm going to sit quietly, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to learn. Um, we hope you enjoy this. It's time to talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Hmm. Yeah, I might regret that. <laughs> enjoy. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, the Move Against Cancer podcast. And today we are going to be talking all things sex and relationships. I'm Sophie Mulligan and I work for Move Charity currently, but I've also had leukemia three times uh, myself. I got involved with Move because I come through the program and thought it was amazing the work that Move are doing. And then um, here I am today talking to, to all you and Today we've got on board with us um, Kate Wilde, who sort of got she's she, she's the reason behind this episode. Really, you know, she's the inspiration behind it. Myself and Lucy saw an article in the BBC uh, all about this topic, and it was great that Kate had raised it. You know, she she was talking about all her experience with cancer, how she found it had an effect on her sex life, um, early menopause, things like that. And then we've also got Millie and Liam with us, who you might also know if you've listened to the podcast episode prior to this one. So the uh, things they don't tell you about cancer. Um, And we've also got Angela, who is a sex psychotherapist from Nottingham Hospital. And she's going to hopefully do a little Q&A with us at the end and anything that we pick up on or anything that we mention, any questions we put to her, she's going to do her best to answer those as well. Um, so I kind of just want to start off this conversation by saying I don't think this topic's spoken about enough and this is exactly why we're sat here today um, and I think it's important that specifically young people get the right advice, they know who they can talk to, they feel comfortable raising these conversations and I suppose that's why yeah I hope everyone even if you are listening today and you know you might not be young but you might have been through cancer yourself or you know someone who's going through cancer treatment and just to give a bit of insight into what it's really like for them um in terms of sex and relationships so Kate why don't you introduce yourself and you know talk about why you wanted to you know sort of speak out to the BBC and get your point across about how your cancer journey has you know impacted your sex life and and you know just your life in general I suppose um hello I'm Caitlin um I suppose it's because I'd been like suffering in silence for so long that I felt as though I finally needed to say something because it was getting to a point that it was affecting me psychologically like it was having a negative impact on my life and I knew I finally had to say something because I thought at the time I was nearly 18 years old is when I finally said something and I thought eventually I'm going to want to re-enter a relationship how am I going to explain this to someone um and it was also like when you're 18 people going off to university people are entering relationships I think during that age as well is when you're a young adult like sex can mean quite a big thing for a lot of people because it's quite a lot of people are sexually active at that age and I my body had changed that and I couldn't quite understand I knew why it changed it's because of the treatment I just didn't know where to go from then and I felt though that's where I was lacking in support and guidance and that's why I want to raise awareness that it's not just like because I felt quite isolated and alone 
And I want other people to know that what it took for me to finally get to where I am now is by using my voice, talking to someone, and eventually I did find that information. However, I wasn't happy that, yes, I got lucky that I had access to some information. It wasn't the best, but it gave me enough confidence to go out and rediscover my body and do it safely. However, I felt a bit let down and disappointed when I found out. It was just because I got quite lucky. And my circumstances was, I just happened to be in a clinic where there was a nurse who did her own women's health clinic that was exclusive to hematology patients, which I think is a bit wrong because just because I'm a hematology patient, I had access to that when I feel as though all cancer patients should have access to that service and that information. And I think overall, just that little bit of advice I got from that one nurse and that appointment, it really had quite a positive impact on me because it meant that I could go back out and, you know, masturbate and not hurt myself again. And also it gave me the confidence to eventually actually put myself out there on the dating scene again. And that's why I do what I do. So Kate, just rewind to when before, sort of like before you was diagnosed, like, you know, was things like this ever an issue for you or, you know, were you quite, you know, free spirit, just, you know, like on the dating scene and, you know, or were you in a relationship or, you know, what, what was life like for you sort of pre-diagnosis just so we can get an idea of what it was like before and then what impact, you know, you, the, the cancer diagnosis and the treatments had on you now? I guess you could say, well, yes, I was a bit of a free spirit um during my teenage years after like became sexually active I was quite very active let's just say my hormones were probably absolutely raging uh, as I got closer to cancer diagnosis um I did get out of a relationship a two-year relationship so I like at that point I think the cancer was also affecting my libido because I had no interest in boyfriends whatsoever I was more concentrated on my health so I wanted to get through all the treatment. Obviously, treatment completely eliminates your libido. I had no interest in romance either. But after I finished treatment, certain feelings came back. I was even watching like old shows and like I was interested in the idea of romance and I was also getting certain desires again. So that's when I decided to take upon myself to try and do things that were ever so normal to me during my teenage years. And that was to masturbate um a lot of people get a bit uncomfortable when females speak about it so I used to keep it quite hush hush because if guys do it it's just boys will be boys kind of thing so I like to speak up on more about it to make people aware that it's not just a boys thing and it like it's not something to be ashamed of because I remember like especially as I was approaching the age of 18 I was becoming more interested in investing in a certain thing, if you know what I mean. So I like to encourage people that um, like female pleasure is a real thing. And when I noticed that I wasn't getting that anymore, that's when I knew something wasn't right. And in a way that felt as though I kind of lost a part of myself. I know it sounds a bit dramatic to some people, but to me it meant a lot. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people will tell you in terms of like their own cancer journey, like whether it's what you're talking about or whether it's other things, but it does make you lose part of yourself, you know, socially, especially because, you know, cancer affects you in many ways, but one of the biggest ways it does is, you know, it reduces your immune system. 
reduces your platelet count so things like sex aren't safe anymore you know your hemoglobin levels drop so you haven't got the energy to even do anything you haven't got the energy sometimes to even go out and actually meet people so it's like how do you form relationships how do you date how you know I was quite fortunate in the sense that my I should say my fiance now but he was my boyfriend at the time we'd been together for two years prior to my diagnosis so I felt extremely comfortable you know around him and you know throughout my cancer journey he stuck by me and we're still together now almost nine years later and I always think what would I have done if I didn't have him like what what was I have done because there's no way I would be able to put myself out there and actually like you know experiment with people or even just like say to people like I- I've had cancer like and how do you feel about that it's it's, it's so uh, for, for different people it's, it's very different isn't it like their circumstances and I think that has a massive impact on them at the time, you know, if you're with someone or whether you're not or, you know, whether you're actively dating or whether you're not. I think that that's a a massive factor in all of this, isn't it, really, about, you know, whether you want to raise those questions with a consultant, you might feel like you don't need to if you're not actively dating. But for people who are or for people who, you know, do want to have fun and things like you, you might feel like you want to ask those questions and you can't sometimes. Um, Millie, Liam, either of you, is there any sort of like take you want to have on this or if maybe you just want to say how how your cancer treatment or, you know, any long term side effects you're suffering from and how that's impacted you and your life and your relationships, your sex life, you you just you run with it. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll speak. Hi, I'm Liam. If um... You didn't hear the other podcast. Um, hi, everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting topic for me, definitely, because I didn't, I wasn't in a relationship when I had my treatment. I had stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I had about six cycles of chemotherapy. And I do feel lucky that was all I had. I was in remission from that stage. Then I was just kind of like dealing with things after that but um yeah it's it's an interesting topic maybe it is it is a a difficult one to talk about I think I agree with what Kate said looking back that the libido is absolutely affected I think at the time maybe I just didn't really think about it like that every week was different when you're going through the cycle, you know, had all these other things going on, but there were weeks when I didn't have a lot of symptoms. I wasn't feeling terrible. Like I was still myself. I still wanted to have those connections with people. I think that's, that's a key point for me. Maybe not the sex so much, but definitely I, at one point towards the end of my treatment, I did seek out a relationship I did try and find a relationship or you know when on the all the dating apps and things I was just trying to put myself out there and find that connection and I think actually that just actually wasn't possible for me to do uh, I just really struggled to maybe communicate what I was going through or find some relatability with other people my own age who were just kind of living living in more of a normal life at the time 
because um, at that time I was 24, so it was just outside of university. So just people kind of going into their first kind of major jobs, things like that, you know, it's a busy time. And um, yeah, just, I really did struggle to have that connection for a long time, even a long time after my treatment. I mean, it was my fiance now I met, we didn't start dating for almost a year after my treatment. You know, I just had to process everything. It really did take a long time. I wasn't really having any other relationships in that period. I just don't think I could have done that. You know, even though I wanted it, it's, it's just, uh, I just wasn't in the right mindset, I think. Liam, despite you not being in a relationship, were you ever spoken about, just out of curiosity, were you ever spoken to about, you know, relationships and sex and things with, you, you know, did your consultant or your specialist nurse ever bring that up as a topic? Because obviously you were, a, you, you know, a young man and they must have assumed that you maybe wanted to pursue a relationship, as you were saying, towards the end of your treatment, you wanted to pursue something. But in terms of when they were explaining side effects and things to you, did they ever mention anything about that, even though that you were single at the time? Did they feel the need to bring that up or or did you not? want to speak about that at the time or you know just just out of interest I don't know if it was just because it, it wasn't something I was asking or for whatever reason but I don't really remember it being brought up at all I mean just maybe that insinuation that because my immune system would be so weak at certain times I shouldn't be really interacting with anyone if possible I should just be by myself for those points but the rest of the the treatment I think there was kind of one week in the three-week cycle when my immunity was at its best and I could go out and things like that. I don't think it was ever really discussed or talked about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that? Because um, like, I, it actually was mentioned to me and whether that was like something because I'd said that I had a boyfriend or whatever, but um, it, it, I must admit it was mentioned to me. So about you know sex and things they were saying you know you must use protection to protect your partner from any you know risk of chemotherapy getting transmitted to them in like you know fluids and things like that and um it's it's so it was mentioned on that level obviously but it just wasn't I'd say that some elements of it wasn't emphasized enough how much of an impact it'd have but that's interesting that even it wasn't mentioned to you at all I do find that quite interesting really because who's to know that maybe two weeks into your treatment you went to meet someone and want to you know do th you know do things with them that you know and you wouldn't have, a, have had a clue really would you of what you should be doing and what was safe for you to do it definitely seems at the moment anyway for for younger people that the information is very hit and miss you know it really does just depend it's kind of luck isn't it where you end up and who you can speak to who knows what? Yeah. Yeah, Millie, what about you? You know, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and you know, any advice you were given or whether you wanted to bring that up, whether you were in a relationship, but just, yeah, anything about you that you want to you wanna talk about? Yeah, hi, so I'm Millie again. I was on the previous podcast with um, Sophie and Liam. Um, yeah, I, I was in a relationship when I was diagnosed and when I started um, treatment, but I was back living at home and my boyfriend was at uni, so we were not 
like together in the same vicinity anyway um it's funny you said when you just said that you remember them mentioning briefly like um make sure to wear protection because of the chemo risks you just like unlocked a little memory and it was so that it reminds me that it was so insignificant they mentioned it like it was nothing do you know what I mean so it was a similar thing to you it was like you know there's risk of um like complications of the chemo passing through fluids and all this but at the time number one I was up the wall thinking about all the other you know that's the last thing on the list that, that they've spoken to you about 16,000 other side effects but I also remember the nurse saying oh but don't worry sex will be the last thing on your mind for the next six months and now I think about that fair enough yeah it was but I don't know that's not really it's not the most informative way to put it is it because what if it was on my mind and then what do you know what I mean um and COVID ruined it for me anyway I had no chance of physical connection with anyone never mind anything else I didn't even see another person never mind touch another person um so yeah although I was in a relationship then um COVID hit and obviously we were in lockdown plus I was obviously shielding um so I didn't see my boyfriend for five for six months at all which obviously had its own challenges because during that time I had to process going through this treatment losing my hair thinking I looked and felt like a completely different person but my boyfriend was still just living his normal life then we had to come back together and somehow fit fit back together it's really strange um but yeah I mean we're still together now so it, it did fit back together it's all good um but you know there is that I think if COVID hadn't been an added complication, what would I have thought? Would I have asked those questions? I don't know. Because I think it was real brushed over, you know, just, oh, don't worry, you won't be thinking about that. And, and off we go. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know. I think you're right. I think there's not that wealth of information that there really ought to be. Because um, it's such a big thing for, like like you said, Caitlin, before, it's such a big thing for people of our age. You know, I was 20 at the time. To just have it brushed over, thinking back now, I think, oh, probably not the best course of action for them to have taken. They probably could have given me a lot more info. But yeah, like I say, I wasn't thinking about it because I was shielding. So that put that to the back of my mind for sure. At least they mentioned it to you, though, you know, but like at least it was brought up. It Even if it was just a passing comment, at least it was brought up. But I suppose, again, what you're saying there it kind of reinforces the fact that are young people comfortable and confident enough to bring this up to their doctors and nurses like there was I think the only people I felt comfortable speaking to about this was my specialist nurses there was a pair of them um and this is when I was treated in Liverpool and I remember asking them like only a few weeks after being diagnosed so I was only 19 and I was like can I kiss my boyfriend and they were like what and I was like you've just said that like chemo can be in fluids and stuff like is it in my spit I just don't know and they were like no you can snog your boyfriend don't worry and it's like well I just I was too scared to ask like the male consultant because I feel stupid and they were like don't feel stupid they were like anything like that if you'd rather speak to a female nurse about it then that's absolutely fine but you know even like that kissing my boyfriend that's not like sex is it but it's still something that was really important to me because it's intimacy and it shows that you care about each other and 
you know, it was it was what you wanted sometimes because it was just that little bit of like what you were used to, I suppose. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to speak about these things because it's what young people are used to. It, you know, you only have to go on social media and it's kind of, it's plastered everywhere, isn't it? You know, and, and a lot of people our age now are getting in relationships, they're getting married, having children and things like that. So a relationship's a massive part of a young person's life, but when cancer's thrown in the mix, it just takes it to a total different level. Um, Kate, I know you mentioned um, before about, you know, that the side effects of your treatment similar to mine have brought on early menopause. How do you approach that topic out of curiosity with anyone that you're dating or are you in a relationship now? I'm sorry, I should have asked that, but you know, how, how do you approach that topic or have you not come across that yet? Um, everybody responds to it quite differently. Um, before I was able to like properly get, like, you know, in a way treatment, where I was having the physical issues, just trying to explain it to people was quite difficult because I was afraid of actually having sex due to the pain. And trying to explain that to someone was like, I didn't even want to explain it. <clears throat> so obviously when I did feel comfortable enough, I would have to speak with someone quite a while and get to know them, like they understand that I've had cancer. I mean, my whole bio was basically about me having it I mean, like, I had quite a humorous bio, so I ended up on a meme page for it. And my friends would always wonder why I got more matches than them, and it's because I use humor. So, um, yeah, as I say, in, in terms of approaching the menopause, one big thing I always like to bring up before I'm getting into a relationship is my fertility. Make sure that somebody understands that. I cannot get pregnant. I cannot have biological children. I did not freeze my eggs. I always like to be honest. And the reason for that is I've also had the experience of, I'm quite glad he was honest with me, but there was one guy who ended up ghosting me after when he found out I couldn't have biological children. Now, it sounds horrible, but this is a real experience. And I also have to respect that that's what he wants in life. And my circumstances aren't his fault and they're not my fault either. It took me a while to grasp that. This is why another thing I always say to people, go to therapy if you're struggling with these issues because I had to, I'm still under a therapist. I have been for the past two and a half years. So I actually see a psycho-oncologist um, and I those like more specially in you know cancer related trauma and experiences so I always talk to her about all those things and also the sex side of things even though she's not sex therapist she's still quite helpful in terms of the menopause again um there wasn't a lot I originally started speaking to people like my specialist nurse saying I was struggling with it and how it was physically affecting me and that's when she suggested that there was another nurse who ran her own, like, women's health clinic. And that's when I was able to talk to her about everything. And that's when she educated me on things like lubes and the toys and stuff as well, because I was interested in that. She was quite compassionate and asking, like, answering all my questions. So she wasn't judgmental. And that then gave me the confidence to like rediscover my body again and what I liked so that 
when I then engaged with a partner, I already knew what I liked and disliked, what works for my body so that it could be as normal as possible. So there weren't as many challenges. So I was able to kind of get over the vaginal atrophy and it also gave me time to get onto something called hormone replacement therapy as well. That really helped. Now the downsides of that is depending on the cancer you had, not everyone can have HRT. So I think it's very good for people to be aware of that. Um, I know that's in the case for, for females as well. Um, I just feel bad for males because I feel as though there's not enough information for those. But, you know, for men after cancer treatment, I don't know how it affects them and their hormones, unfortunately. But for me, I think it's because I'm quite an open person. I got the education before I actually did get into a relationship and I've been on and off with a guy due to COVID. Um, probably just over a year now, been together, but we didn't see each other for a long time because he's at, he's at university. It's a similar situation like Millie explained. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Um, but yeah, I think it's because I'm an overly confident person. I know some people probably am more humble than I am and can you can't talk to someone about it. But I this is why I like to encourage other people too, because I say once you say something you don't know where it's gonna take you. And I'm grateful and like I'm glad I said something because if you just say yes and you do actually say something, it it could like lead you to, you know, a good a good like I don't know how to explain it. It could lead you to where you need to be. Is what I'm saying, take you on the right path. And I always encourage people, just like, if you know you are suffering in silence, it might not be easy to say something, you don't know how to say it. Someone such as a medical professional will understand, they will be compassionate. I don't know many like medical professionals, if they don't know how to handle it, like my oncologist, if they feel awkward, I'm sure they'll probably just refer you to someone else who does know about it. That's the way I see it anyway. Yeah, there's always someone out there to help, isn't there? It's just trying to find that person, I suppose. Um, you mentioned just then about, you know, I think and I think I'm on the same wave, wavelength as you. Like, I, I know about women, like, you know, I'm on HRT as well, and it is an absolute lifesaver. Um, and I sometimes think that, people think women have it really hard and like worse than men because they didn't have time to freeze my eggs either so I can't have biological children and you know things like that but obviously it, for men they, they do suffer as well so thankfully we've got a man here with us Liam <laughs> if, is there anything you know that you want to add to that like that to give us an insight into what it is because I think sometimes people are a bit ignorant about it and they think oh well it's easy for men you know men just get over it but I don't think they do all all the time I don't think it's that simple and I don't think it's fair to to say all men just get over it like and women suffer more yeah I mean that's definitely not the case but I think I think we just don't know some men just don't know how to express themselves in a normal situation anyway this is just like a traumatic difficult situation and you've got to talk about you know infertility i suppose like that's 
almost like a is that like a masculine trait people see that you know i having kids and um the idea that you can't do that because you are infertile and that i think my treatment it was at least 70 percent chance of infertility i actually don't even know if i am fertile right now or not to be honest i really don't even know i mean i was lucky though i will say that i have did freeze some um sperm before i had the treatment but it's it's still there's still unknowns in my life about that and don't know as kate was saying i i actually myself don't know the long-term effects of the chemo i had and the cancer i had uh hormonally and i was thinking about that i mean just generally i don't really know the long-term effects i, I remember you know when you have your diagnosis they give you like a 500 page document of all the thousands of side effects that you're gonna maybe get maybe not get and um I do think the long-term effects, they were just very vague. I don't really think there was a lot of information about there, if, if I remember. And I don't even know where to look to get that information, actually. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why I'm saying it. I think for men, it is more difficult sometimes because I know if I raise something, there's we've got Liverpool Women's Hospital who specialise in endocrinology services for women. And, and like I know where I could go to get information about like my fertility and and you know menopause and things like that but for men it's not that clear is it really it's and it's it's I suppose that's what you're saying like you you wouldn't have a clue where to go and and what you know what that information may be we're too shy to ask the men we're all just hiding in the corner but I I, no, I mean it's true it's we should we should there should be that information easily available I mean yeah, it is. It's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, Millie, you were nodding your head at something before that. That Liam said, "I just saw I you was. nodding." It's, it was um, that you don't really know how your treatment affected your fertility. I know we had the same cancer and the same treatment. I was nodding because I thought, "No, I don't know," and I still don't know. Um, I remember asking my consultant at the first meet him where he like officially diagnosed me after he'd like provisionally diagnosed me and told me what treatment I would be on um asking if it would affect my fertility and I'd not even thought of it but like adults in my life like real adults not I was an adult but like real adults had mentioned it in passing and I thought god don't even that's too much I don't want to think about that right now I'm only 20 but now I, I did ask and I remember the consultant saying well your treatment isn't guaranteed to make you infertile but if you were a boy, we'd get you to freeze some sperm, but there's no time to freeze your eggs. So we'll just, I don't know, hope for the best. And sometimes it, at the time it didn't bother me. I thought, well, he said, I'm probably, you know, he said, I'm not definitely not, I'm not definitely going to be infertile. Okay. Took it and off I went. But I do sometimes replay that conversation in my head and think, was he telling me that I'm likely to be infertile, likely to be fertile? I can't get my head around it still. And I don't know. I don't think I ever really was told what to do about that, where to find that information. Shall I just wait until I want to have a child and then I realise whether I can or can't? Like, I don't know. I was nodding along because I feel similar to Liam. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know even. That's the thing. It's all just, yeah, unknown. 
Yeah, no, Kate, you're not you're nodding as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, in terms of finding out my actual status in terms of fertility, I actually kind of found out like in a way by accident. Now, when I got diagnosed and I had my one-to-one with the doctor and it was, have you got a boyfriend? I said, no, I'm out of a relationship, that malarkey. Um, one of the, when doctors always say, have you got any questions for me? My first question was, can I freeze my eggs? Because I was not expecting to start treatment right away. It was like, I was expecting to get started like the month later or something kind of thing. No, it was uh, less than two weeks. <laughs> And I was a bit naive at the time, I was only 17, so I always joke saying that the boys have got it easy, just throw them in a room for an hour, give them a bit of privacy in a cup, and you've got your sample. Um, but with the females, it's, it's different. You've got to, I believe it's quite a painful process as well. I did not know until I actually met someone who'd been through it and what the harvesting was like, and it sounded quite painful. So I was kind of glad, in a way, I wasn't put through that. What part of me is still quite sad that there's that aspect I'm never going to have biological kids. So I had to accept it there on that day. I'm not going to have biological children. But I always thought, oh, there's other options, you know, there's adoption or there's egg donation. And I always, I kind of went through my treatment thinking for the future. I would probably go down the egg donation route. And I always thought that's what I'm going to do. So I still got the experience of carrying a child. And when I was on my journey for, like, finding out about HRT, it's because I was, my menopause was very, I was getting a lot of symptoms from it and I wanted them to go away. So it was an endocrinologist who suggested um, hormone replacement. Now, I was a bit sceptical because I thought, isn't that for transgender people? Because I had no idea about it. I did not know it was for people who were menopausal. I just had friends who transgender and they were on on that so I thought it was just the trans people I was wrong it's for anyone who has any hormone imbalances and it's natural medication and that was suggested to me so I had to see a fertility specialist before I couldn't quite understand why but I had to see a fertility specialist in the hospital and have an internal ultrasound and that was to see how many like eggs I had and they looked at my ovaries and all that malarkey and I remember going up to the follow-up appointment and one of the things he like he apologized to me like I was on my own in this appointment and he let me know about the womb shrinkage I had as a result of my estrogen deficiency and I was just kind of like I'm at this appointment to find out about what HRT regimen I can go on not to find out that I can never have kids or physically carry a child so I found out there and then on that appointment I will never get that experience either so that was quite a difficult thing to take in, in that appointment all at once. So I'll never be able to even do egg donation or IVF either. So there's part of me that was upset he told me there and then because I wasn't there for that. I was there to get my HRT and go. But there's those little things like fertility. I think it's, there's just not enough, like, information or like there's not enough preparation either for that kind of thing or being told like um I may only be 20 now but like Liam and Millie said they don't know the state of their fertility right now I just happen to find out by accident do you know what you've just educated me there as well because 
I spoke to my consultant um, before my stem cell transplant and he said to me, following this procedure, you will never be able to carry a child. And I never knew why. And obviously that's probably picking on up on, on what you're saying about, you know, like the womb shrinkage and things like that. But that's actually not being discussed with me. And I can be referred to sort of like family planning services and things if I wish. And, you know, the mentions of like ultrasounds and things that's been brought up in those conversations. But I've never actually like I've just learned something from you. And I suppose that that's why we're doing this podcast, because how many people listening to this are going to be like, yeah, that's how I feel. And oh, well, I've just learned something new and and things like that. Um, I suppose for one thing about that I wanted to mention as well, um, and Angela, I'm sure if we bring you in in a second, you might be able to answer this for me because of the type of work that you do. But um following cancer treatment um I actually classed myself as disabled for a period of time because the steroids that I had caused the condition called avascular necrosis and that meant that I literally physically couldn't walk because my hips had crumbled into like nothing and I'm still suffering now with my shoulders and my elbows but my hips have thankfully now been replaced and one of the main reasons for me getting my hips replaced was obviously to be able to walk again and live a normal life, but was to enjoy sex again. Um, because it was physically impossible for me and my partner to to do that. And, you know, I just, I, I never knew where to get advice on those kinds of things. So it's like, that's another thing that cancer took away from me, even in the long term. Like I couldn't get back to doing normal things because physically I couldn't. So yeah, there's obviously there's other physical symptoms that that you know chemotherapy and radiotherapy treatment bring on, such as what you mentioned before, Kate, about like the vaginal dryness and things like that. But actually wanting to to be intimate with your partner and physically not being able to is that that used to get me so so upset, and it was actually something that I've very rarely spoken about, and it's something that I wish. I'd been able to speak to other young people about but there's just I just didn't know anyone and and that's why that though I just wanted to touch on that point before we kind of go to Angela because like I wish I had someone to listen to talking on a podcast and be able to say yeah I'm in that position now I'm, I'm awaiting the operation or because it's it's oh it used to frustrate me so much because I'd be like saying to him like like, there's nothing against you I really want you know I really want to like be intimate with you but I physically can't and it was just it was just heartbreaking and thankfully now I am in the position where you know I'm back to love and life and and being able to you know do what I want to do but it's just I don't want people to think that oh you know young people who have cancer they they go through all this and they have to be on HRT and they have to do this and that but sometimes physically it's like it's impossible for for young people to get back to a point that they were before diagnosis and, and before treatment. Um, so, Angela, I suppose if you want to introduce yourself and and maybe you know pick up on anything that we've spoken about and and Liam, Millie, Kate, any questions you've got, obviously, we'll feel free to ask those to Angela. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I work as a psychosexual therapist in a busy NHS hospital and see lots of people. I think the youngest age uh, person that we would see in our clinic would be 18, 18 onwards. 
So we do get referrals for young people with a cancer diagnosis, but we also get young people, you know, anxiety about sex, worried about relationships. So it really is a mixed bag. And to be honest, listening to you talk, and thank you for sharing all your personal information. And I think what shocked me more is, I think the only information most of you have had has either been through luck or by accident. And I think that's absolutely shocking. You know, I mean, I know Millie was saying that, you know, somebody said, oh, for the next six months, you won't be thinking about sex. Well, that isn't actually information. That's dismissing it because they don't want to talk about it. That's actually putting a, you don't need to talk about this. It really isn't important. Well, it might be important to some people. And also what they should have said is it might not be important to you at the moment because you're going through all your treatment. But if ever you need to speak to me or want more information, just pick up the phone, make an appointment, and we can talk about it. Because even if they don't have the answers, they should be able to signpost you to places that do have the answers. It shouldn't be through luck or accident. And, you know, Caitlin's story about, you know, because she's more confident, was more able to sort of voice, you know, her need for more information you know it shouldn't it shouldn't be down to somebody having that confidence because that takes an awful lot of guts for one person to do that you shouldn't have to fight for information that should be provided to you or anybody else who has cancer you know whether they're young or old they should be allowed even if it's not appropriate now an opportunity to go back and talk about it when that person's ready to talk about it so that's what I picked up on. <clears throat> and I have a bit of a mission because I talk to lots of uh, medics and I have done for many years. And it really gets my goat that they actually don't feel confident and comfortable talking about sex. If you work in any disease area, any, any sort of area in medicine where the treatment or the condition is likely to impact on sexual function, you should be addressing those issues with the people that you see. I just, I find it, you know, we're in 2022 and they're still not comfortable talking about it and they all do it. Well, generally, <laughs> you know, they all do it. They're all born from it. You know, why can't we have a decent conversation like adults about it? And the other thing I always tell medical professionals, you know, they, they I've heard them say, well, they'll bring it up if they need to. Well, they shouldn't, shouldn't be on you to bring it up. It should be on the medical professionals. I mean, we call it the silent scream when you know there's a question in your head that you want to ask, but you haven't got anybody there to ask it of. Because it's not just being able to ask the question, it's somebody actually being able to look you in the eye and have a, an engaging conversation. I mean, I remember being asked once by a gynecologist after I had a hysterectomy, she was looking on a computer screen and she said, mm, is sex okay? Well, she never even looked at me. So even if sex wasn't okay, there'd be no way I'd be engaging in a conversation with somebody that can't look up from a computer screen. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. And I'm glad you mentioned masturbation because masturbation is my other favourite topic. I ask everybody, once they come in my clinic door, after I say hello, sit down, I, my, nearly my, always my first question is, do you masturbate? not really I do let them settle in a bit beforehand but it's a really important question it's, it's important for men women non-binary trans people you want to know what somebody's current sort of pleasurable desire is even if they're not in a relationship 
So yeah, masturbation. I've even talked to John Humphreys on Radio 4 about masturbation, which I thought was quite an achievement. <laughs> you won't know who he is. He's really old, much older than me. Um, so yeah, masturbation uh, is really important. And um, I think what Caitlin was saying about if you go through an early menopause, the very least you should expect from your healthcare professional is information on things like HRT, also on vaginal moisturizers, because there are going to be, if you have a lack of estrogen, that means not only do you have, you know, might have some shrinkage, um, you know, womb shrinkage, you know, your vagina, your vagina is one area that gets less wrinkles when you get less estrogen. So it's the only thing for older women that gets less wrinkles as you get older if you've gone through the menopause because it's, it's the elasticity of the vagina that you have when you're young that's related to estrogen. So when you have no estrogen, it can lead to a, a, a lack of um, elasticity. So that's why if you're not on systemic HRT, then for those women who can't take systemic HRT, and what that means is it means you've got a patch or a tablet so that or a gel so that the, the estrogen is going through the whole of your body for some women they can't take that because it's hormonal it depends on the type of cancer but those women if they go into a premature or early menopause need to make sure they at least have vaginal moisturizers or local estrogen treatment where the estrogen is just in their vagina but they need to discuss that with their oncologist but if they can't take anything hormonal you definitely need a non-hormonal moisturiser to keep the tissue in the vagina healthy. Sorry, I've got another rant. Angela, can I just raise something? So obviously yeah. we're all young and I'm pretty sure yeah. at some point during our consultations we had a parent with us. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, you know, there might be people a lot younger than us who have got both parents there or yeah. whatever. But how would you suggest maybe a healthcare professional go about asking about sex when parents are present or should the young person you know maybe give a signal of you know can we talk about something but I want my parents to leave you know I'm just that that's something that because obviously there was times when like my mum was with me yeah and I'd be just like oh please just like go away a second I just want to ask about something personal but and I don't want you to to hear because yeah. you're my mum you know I think that's another issue we, sh we should just briefly mentioned yeah I think it's a difficult one really and I think it depends on again somebody's ability to say I need to you know there's some things I'd like to ask on my own or the healthcare professional saying you know at some point you might want to come back and speak to me on your own and you, you know more than happy for you to give me a call or you know if you don't want to come back in person because parents might want to come with you because they're driving you to and from the hospital you might just give somebody a phone number and say, is anything you want to go over with me, anything we've missed out, you know, just give me a call or this is my email address. And then there's another way of communicating that isn't in that time when you've got your parents there. Yeah, I think that's something that was maybe missing personally for me. Yeah. I was never... So, I mean, I was in front of, like, my mum and dad and my younger sister. Have I ever took drugs? And, like, I, I'm, like, I'm, like, a really good girl. I never have. And I was, like, no, but there might be young people sitting there who have. And, and they don't want the parents knowing. Yeah. So, it's, like, you know, that the, this should have been an opportunity for me yeah. to ask those questions yeah. and speak about those things yeah. on my own. And it's so easy, you know, it's so easy to, you know, 
give somebody your you know your number or do you know what I mean the healthcare yeah. you know, they should be thinking about things like that I mean I remember going to the fertility clinic once where they had the masturbation room you know and again you know they were saying you've got a young man who might be having um treatment for cancer I mean what we want um, a sperm sample and he's got to go in that room you know with his parents outside no, you know, that he's got to he's got to go in that room and masturbate to give a sample. It's not the most erotic experience in the world. And I have to say there were very big windows. And at the time, you know, they had a couple of crinkly old magazines, which is <laughs> they certainly they certainly weren't, you know, in the 20 20, 21st century. Yeah, that, that, again, that's another thing, isn't it, really? Like, you know, I'm sure you don't want your parents not to have the room known for, well, what you're doing in, the, in there. <laughs> if that's not going to ruin your erection, I don't know what will. Um, Kate, Millie, Liam, have you got anything at all that you want to ask Angela? Like, feel free to ask away. I, I just wanted to say, like, I'm so glad, like, you're talking about the way you talk about uh, masturbation. Because, like, going through my teens, I used to, keep it quite hush hush and I was like yeah. so ashamed of it because I only ever heard about the boys doing it and it was yeah. always normal for the boys because like in sex ed like girls are only taught about the function like oh you menstruate and you have kids yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. well sex education in school is usually warnings isn't it yeah and <laughs> it's not about sexual pleasure or, yeah so but I just remember like um, if you like when when I did finally look at some of the current sexual health info that my hospital offered, I found out it was quite heteronormative and there was no mention of masturbation whatsoever. Now, it was because of masturbation is when I realised my body was different. Yeah. So I didn't have sex with someone else. I essentially did it with myself and that's when I realised something wasn't right. But another thing as well is just that appointment of where I felt comfortable enough to tell that nurse um, I'm interested in buying a sex toy eventually. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do because I was 17 at the time. I wasn't, I was nearly 18. I was getting ready to, I always kind of, in a way, dreamed of buying one for myself. People, when they turn 18, want to buy a car, all sorts, that's their choice. I would, I just want to buy my very own vibrator. <laughs> like, I, I didn't care. Like, that's why I wanted. And eventually I did. I've got my own collection. And I used to be like so ashamed of, of like talking to like even my other female peers and companions about it. Whereas now I'm actually quite close to my mum and I'll even talk to my own grandma about these things, whereas I never used to. I think turning 18 kind of changes things, like changes your relationships a bit. Mm. And I remember when my mum like first found my collection, let's say, at first I thought I'd be like really embarrassed. I just kind of looked at it and I was like, Mum, I've seen your sock drawer years ago. <laughs> and it was just kind of like, yeah, that's it. We just cracked up. And I think that's when you kind of realise, like, I was at that point in my life where I'm a young woman. I'm interested in these things. I'm going to buy these things. And I'm just grateful I can buy those things now I'm 18. Because, I mean, I've showed by that nurse some, like, special ones. I mean, if it wasn't um, for that appointment, I wouldn't even known what a dilator was. Ah, uh, yeah, we use those a lot in clinic. I was given a dilator, <laughs> and I remember seeing a TV show where mm. you've probably heard of it on Netflix called Sex Education. Yeah. One of the characters actually had a dilator set. My friends had no idea what that was, whereas I did. 
and that little moment <laughs> meant so much to me because mm. I was somebody who actually uses a dilator mm. so it meant so much to me to see it in a Netflix show anyway um in terms of like the vibrator the ones that she showed me were like approved for like menopausal women in a way you know women with her issues and I just looked at them and thought they looked pretty plain whereas uh, with the bright pink ones you know that you see and summers and all that kind of thing so I went and done that anyway <laughs> but it's just it's just that everyone's like priorities are different some people might want to go buy a car I wanted to invest in some spicy toys just as you do well the thing is when you've all spoken tonight you've all come from a slightly different place you know you've got slightly different you've got things in common but you've also got different stories because of where you were either before the diagnosis and treatment or afterwards but, you know, I think certainly, you know, you talked about the dilators. We use them in clinic all the time. And for those of you who don't know, I mean, I call them trainers because I hate the word dilating. But so they're for women who are scared of penetration, either because there's a medical issue and they've had pain or maybe they're just scared. And it's a way of gradually building up confidence about, sorry, this is this is putting some can't see it very well that way putting something in your vagina and gradually building up your confidence rather than going from nothing to something larger sorry lucy no sorry i'm i well i'm jumping in i i knew i would end up doing it um you guys are very brave um and honestly it's i've learned so much um I think something that's really struck me is how all of you have independently said that pretty much the only advice you got was very negative. You shouldn't do this. You must use contraception. You might not want to. And, and that's that's really stuck with me, actually. I just wanted to ask um, you guys and also Angela as well, something I often wonder about is the impact of couples going through cancer treatment because one person's got the cancer and is having the treatment and the other person's life is changed turned upside down because of that um and i i guess just i i guess just reflect a little bit on that and also if sex isn't possible because of libido or for whatever reason how can couples going through cancer treatment try to maintain that intimacy without the physical connection that you'd normally have? Don't know whether I'm asking you guys or Angela. <laughs> <laughs> can I just can I just pick up on that, Lucy? That's why when I said before, like um, I, I like look at my partner now and I think, what would I have done if I didn't have him? And that's because, like exactly what you're saying, you know it does have a massive impact on a relationship but at the same time I feel really lucky that I had one because I couldn't imagine trying to go back on the dating scene now like having been through what I've been through and like I remember one night like I was literally having this like breakdown and I was just like oh my god like if I didn't have my partner like no one would want me because I'm broken and that's how I viewed myself I was like I'm broken no one would want me why would they want someone like me like what I've been through what I'm like now you know physically I'm so different to what I used to be and you know things like that so I almost feel guilty that I've had someone who stuck by me the whole way through and 
I suppose we found comfort in doing things that we found normal. So still going out for a meal when I was able to, um, spending a lot of time together um, and, and knowing that it's okay to both do our own thing. So I had no objection at all to him still going out with his friends and living his life while I was stuck at home. And obviously that was really hard because I wanted to be out doing them things with him and I couldn't. Um so obviously the, the, there's negatives as well. Like I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything like, oh, well, being in a relationship was perfect throughout cancer treatment because it wasn't. Um, but I suppose as a couple, the, the only advice I'd give on reflection of my own journey is that just do things that feel normal to you, do things that you enjoy. So we used to enjoy going for a coffee and a scone at this one garden centre and we, we'd still do that all the time like like little old old man and woman like that's what we'd feel like but that's something we enjoyed and that's something that we put time aside to do because we we both enjoyed doing it and you know yeah it wasn't like intimate or anything like that but it's still something we found happiness in as a couple and um, so that's like advice I'd give not that's not professional advice at all saying go and get a scone and a coffee but that's just from, from a personal you know that's that, that's personal advice really what you're talking about though is maintaining a connection even if other things are difficult yeah whatever that connection is or whatever that means or whatever you enjoy doing but then of course that depends as well on the on the quality of your relationship doesn't it oh yeah I agree with that I mean I feel like people look at us and they go oh you're so strong like everything you've been through and it's like but like I didn't want him to feel like he had to stay with me because of what I was going through like he made the choice and and we stayed together because we had a, a connection on a, a much yeah. deeper level and we were kind of we knew from being together sort of a few months that we were right for each other and we wanted to be long term but I don't want people to listen to this and and think oh like I have to stay with this person because they're going through cancer treatment it it, it all exactly as you've just said Angela it, it depends on the strength of your connection I think Yeah, I was going to say something really similar to you, Sophie. I think doing those things that are so normal before is what's really important in maintaining intimacy, maybe not on like a typical intimate level, but like your sort of mental intimacy, that connection that you've got is doing those things. And at the start of the treatment before COVID, um, my boyfriend would still come and visit from uni um, and I would be at that point I was still really ill and like had no energy and stuff and there would be days where I would just sleep on the settee but I was I, I was okay I still felt like I'd seen him because I knew he was next to me when I was asleep and like I that was you must have thought god I'm not going all the way to see her just for her to sleep but he still did and that's really hard I, and like you say you, you do feel that guilt almost of you feel like you're putting someone else through six months of this treatment as well because you don't know what it's going to be like and you think can someone put up with that because I don't know if I can never mind you know a person that doesn't need to do it um but yeah I mean there were those little things of just still spending that time together and then after Covid again learning to spend those times together and eating food that we liked together cooking together watching tv together again simple things but that's definitely I think how I felt we maintained that connection even when other things were a bit weird I think Liam I was just going to ask you like 
now obviously you you're like you've got your fiance and stuff and you met her after treatment you said about a year after treatment you know does your cancer experience have any impact at all on your relationship or is it just something completely in the background yeah I think it does I mean there are so many things that me and my fiance that that we both connect over that make us uh, an amazing couple but she has also had health issues of her own you know and I think that that is such a key thing that we have actually been able to there's just like an understanding there you know we both have good days and bad days and it just almost has been something that has bonded us and I think that was maybe a reason I struggled to find someone else in that period it's because I didn't know how to start things off how to find that commonality maybe um especially when i was trying to find something during my treatment as well look at what you guys said is true as well you, you do feel a bit of guilt like do i want to bring someone into that world that is so difficult for everyone around me as it is how can you bring someone else into that um, so yeah i mean i yeah i genuinely think it still is very important to my relationships even now, a few years later. Okay, can I just interject? Because something we haven't talked about is erectile dysfunction. And, and um, Angela, can you just perhaps do a bit of signposting? <laughs> yeah. for, I was for... just thinking about erections then. as you Just before you spoke, erections were on my mind. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, because I think we were to, there's two things, I think, that struck me earlier about, you know, women or, you know, um, who might know where to go in terms of help. But, you know, where do men go or people with a penis go if they have problems when it's not necessarily that clear? And, and, I, and I do think, you know, people, you know, men do struggle talking, talking about issues with, with sexual function. And if they have to go via their GP, you know, you have to go through the receptionist first. And it's not, it's not easy to say that to a receptionist before you get to see the doctor. So I think there's, I think in terms of erections, um, you can have physical causes for um, erectile dysfunction and they might be as a result of, of cancer treatment, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, depending on where that is in the body. Um, if it's in the pelvic area, it could have an impact on erections. Um, you've got things like MS, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, but they're the sort of illnesses that potentially would affect older men. Um, if you're talking about younger men, it might depend on the type of cancer and what treatment they've had. Um, or it could be as a result, usually after illness, um, men um, can um, have low testosterone. So that can just be a, tempor a temporary thing as a result of illness in the treatment and the testosterone levels might then go back to normal afterwards. But certainly if men were struggling with sexual interest or erectile dysfunction, you'd certainly suggest that at some point they might want to have their testosterone checked just as a precaution. Um, and then the other thing that can cause erection problems is anxiety and stress and fatigue. You know, if you're fatigued, you'll have a fatigued penis. If you're stressed, you'll have a stressed penis. 
If you're depressed, you'll have a depressed penis. So, you know, you, the penis is a bit of a barometer to how someone's feeling. Um, and in our clinic, you know, we would, you know, find out what the issues were for the person and whether they wanted, you know, treatment for their erectile dysfunction, whether that is medication or whether that's therapy if it's more anxiety related. But, you know, my experience of working with men over 20 years is the first thing they do when they've been ill is they test it out. Just, you know, just like women do, you know, you want to check if everything's still working and you usually check out on your own what's happening, what's going on, does it still work? The same story that Caitlin talked about, that that she had to discover her own body and, and what it felt like. And I think that's what most people do. So, yeah, there are treatments available for erectile dysfunction. And and do you think them... Do you think that 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 doctors underprescribe medications to support mm. erectile function, or because so I prescribed once to one patient, um, yeah. which I guess is telling. I've been a consultant for three years, a registrar for five years. Um, do you think that's that's you know should I have prescribed it to more? Maybe I just never realised. Well, I mean, if you're coming out a long period of treatment, you might, you know, not be feeling well, feeling fatigued. You may, your testosterone may, may have had a bit of a dip. And, you know, the, the longer you go without erections, whether that's erections for masturbation, erections uh, for penetration or nighttime erections, you know, it's a body part that's not getting the blood flow it needs. And it's the same with the vulva and the vagina. If you're not getting aroused, you're not getting stimulated, it's not getting blood flow. So sometimes if men have had a problem over a longer period of time, you know, it's more like penile rehab. You know, you can't just take one tablet when you've not had a good erection for three months and think, think you're going to have the most amazing sexual experience. It's like the same, you know, like if you think about it, the clitoris and the, the equivalent to a man's penis is the clitoris. So both of them have got erectile tissue, both of them need blood flow, both of them need stimulation. So the sooner that you get things reestablished. So if I were seeing um, men I'd, and they had a problem, I think they should be on treatment as soon as possible. They might not need it long term, but it encourages blood flow. And if you use like a longer acting medication like Tadalafil, then it can help restore nighttime and morning erections as well. So, you know, it's a body part, just like female body part, that needs blood flow. It struck me there's a lot of education that needs to happen around doctors like me. Um, well, have you got specific resources that you think would be really good for me to know about to, to signpost my patients towards? Because there's some stuff that you guys have talked about. That I think, actually, I do that quite well. I do give people the opportunity to talk to me on their own without their parents etc but I probably don't talk about sex as much as I should do um and the main reason I wanted to do this was because as, as I said to you Angela before the start if people if I do talk about it with them I, I don't actually have any anything good to help them with other than what comes out of my mouth which probably isn't that helpful <laughs> so where can I well like, where can I kind of help signpost people towards well, I mean, I did look at a couple of leaflets or things on, online for young people who've had cancer, and they talk. They seem to talk quite generically about things rather than specifics. Um, so, the things I would suggest is: um, Have you come across the um, Love Lounge? 
Embrace UK is an organisation for people with visible and invisible illness and disability. And it's a fantastic resource. You can, you know, type in questions, send in questions, you can register. And it's particularly for people with disability, but I think they use that term in its, in its widest sense. So when I've looked on there, there's, there was somebody asking questions who'd had a cancer diagnosis and was feeling fatigued, um, people with chronic pain. So I think that, you know, that's one resource I would highly recommend. What's that website, Angela? It's called Embrace UK and, it's, and the, the, they've got a love lounge where you can ask any sort of relationships, sexual questions where you might not, you might not be able to access therapy on the NHS or you might not really want therapy, but you actually want to ask a few questions. So that's a really good resource. Um, in terms of all things penis, there is a book called The User's Guide to the Penis Members Club. That was written by a consultant neurologist, but it's quite a little book. Not saying anything about yeah, size, but it's quite a little book. Um, but it's in a really chatty, you know, it's a chatty style, but it covers everything, everything, ejaculation issues. But it's not specifically related to a cancer diagnosis. In terms of um, psychogenic erectile dysfunction, there's a website called mojo.so that's specifically for young men with psychogenic or stress-related erectile dysfunction. Um, uh, Karen Gurney, Dr. Karen Gurney has got a brilliant TEDx talk called Mind the Gap, all about des desire and des desire discrepancy and um, the difference between, for women, the difference between spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Um, and she's very, um, what's the word, um, inclusive and diverse in a TEDx talk and, and in a book that's called Mind the Gap. And then there's Emily Nagoski. I love Emily Nagoski. So she's got a book called Come As You Are. And it, it's, it talks about, you know, about everything to do with female anatomy and female sexual function. But again, it's a more of a generalist book. But she's got, if you put Emily Nagoski worksheets, um, um, you can download her worksheets and these are really good for couples um, where you get to sort of think about um, what sort of things might get in the way of you feeling sexual. You know, what are your sexual breaks? And then also gets you th to think about what are your sexual accelerators. And, and it's, it's a really good way of having, a, you know, sometimes talking with a partner can be quite difficult, you know. I mean, it's difficult when you've had things to deal with, like, you know, you've had to deal with. Most people can't find it difficult to talk anyway. So I find her worksheets a really good way of having a, a, a discussion that's not, doesn't feel like a personal attack. It's more like having a nice discussion so you can look at what gets in the way, what's important, what you like. So I think both, all those resources are really helpful. Lucy, I was just going to say to you, if you put your consultant head on for a minute, what would you sort of say to patients listening to this? Like, in your best words, of kind of like reassure patients, like you can ask these questions. And like, I don't know, you saying something like I've seen it all before would comfort me. But is there anything you could say to, to just make people like us 
more willing to speak up to their consultants and their healthcare professionals? Um, I think my take home is we need to give people the opportunity and, and just open that door so that if that if sex or relationships or, or whatever is something that that is on their mind, the door is they know that the door is open. So actually, I don't know if any of you guys did and an I am. Did you guys do that? So in, in Nottingham, we for, for our teenage and young adult patients who are having cancer treatment, um, at the start of treatment, sometimes during the treatment, at the end of treatment, whenever they want to, um, they fill in an IM either with a specialist nurse or on their own. And, and it covers everything from physical to relationships to income to school or work or um, future planning or finances. Um, and that's really helpful because because that then you don't have to bring it up as a patient. Like I think some, was it you, Caitlin, you said you don't have to, to say it. It's, it's, there's a question that asks you specifically, um, is this something that you'd like some, some help with? Um, and and that's, that's really helpful. That doesn't actually come directly to us, so I have to go out and look for it. But um, I think my, yeah, I, I do often say we've, we've seen it all before, so it's quite reassuring to know that you would find that helpful because sometimes I listen to myself and I go, like, God, has that really come out of my mouth? What are they going to think? Has that really been helpful at all? Um, but yeah, I think I just reflecting to you, to talking to you guys, I, I probably don't bring it. I, I probably don't open that door as widely as I could do, and and I, I don't think I'm someone who brushes over it completely, but I probably should offer people opportunities to talk about it more often and I think that I'm gonna definitely take that away with me but we have seen it all before and yeah I mean some some people would get mortified having to talk about it I mean my mum is a sex therapist and <laughs> I grew up with books of sex on you know we used to have sleepovers and look at all look all, all her books and you know as a teenager thinking it was hilarious but I I'm, I'm definitely not like that I'm not someone who's really comfortable talking about it but I can do it in a professional capacity. <laughs> I was just thinking maybe you should make they should make this podcast mandatory for training of all <clears throat> nurse specialists and doctors. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. And I I think what we do know for healthcare professionals is if we don't know where to signpost people or we don't know how to help then then we avoid the question and so I think it's twofold it's firstly giving you guys the opportunity to talk about it but also perhaps having some something helpful in our in our kind of armory to use if people say well this is an issue because medics like to you know we're probably all going to do a testosterone level if a guy said that he was struggling with sex but we probably wouldn't do anything more than that and you know that's normal you most people would probably think job done but there's so much more underlying it isn't there I, can I just say, like, I've honestly, like, learned so much from, like, each and every one of you about, you know, all about relationships and sex and stuff. But I think the main thing that, like, and the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because, you know, and I think it's something I say all the time, but you are a person who has cancer, you're not just the cancer patient. So talking about sex, talking about relationships, it's perfectly normal and it shouldn't be a taboo because, just because you've got cancer, like you're still a young person and you still want to do all the things that other young people your age are doing and why shouldn't you be able to why shouldn't you be entitled to the help when you need it 
And that's why I hope anyone listening to this has maybe got a little bit of confidence from it to to think, well, no, I I, I should be able to raise this and I will raise it with my healthcare professional. Um, because I just I wish I I had have done really and I wish this resource would have been available to me you know when I was going through my journey and particularly sort of at diagnosis that I'd kind of know a bit more what to expect really so cancer is only part of your life it's not your whole life and you know if if there are things that are bothering you it's so so important to speak up because you know we're all here telling you our deepest darkest secrets (laughs) so I'm pretty sure you can talk to your healthcare professional about anything that's bothering you so I just wanted to say that (laughs) Yeah, I was only just now thinking, Sophie, similar, touching on a bit what you just said. I wish it's making me wish I could go back to me a couple of years ago and say, listen, just ask them questions. Because now I think, why did I not ask them? I never regret not asking them. And I wish I could ask them now, but I don't need to know the answer in the same way I did then. Um, so as we were going through this over the last hour or so, I've been thinking to myself, God, I wish I could talk to me, you know it was actually two years ago the other day that I was diagnosed so literally me two years ago I wish I could say to her listen just ask them questions just wait till you know give them a call like you say doesn't matter if your mum's with you because some of those conversations where I say they say oh don't worry you won't be thinking about it I was with my mum so I wasn't going to tell them whether I'd be thinking about it or not right in front of my mum it was weird but yeah I wish I could go back to two years ago me and um, say though come on sort yourself out just ask and yeah. it's normal. It's normal yeah. to ask. It's not. Exactly. It's it's not a taboo, and it shouldn't be. It's it's normal to ask, and it's normal to want to ask. You're a young person, you know, and yeah. and this is just part of your life that that's going on. So, you know, it's it's perfectly normal to want to to know. And I exactly. would say, you know, we yeah, we want you to talk to us. We you know we treat we choose to treat cancer. No one's making us do it. If we work with young people, we choose to work with young people and. I would so much rather have a hundred questions every single day than have something that's really bothering someone that they don't feel able to open up to me about. So um, you're right, never ever be scared to ask. Nothing's too stupid, nothing's too embarrassed. We pretty much have seen it all before. And if we haven't, we're not going to tell anyone. (laughs) Maybe you you as a group should write down the questions we, we wish we'd asked. As questions that you could put, you know, on the charity or whatever you're involved with. So, great idea. Yeah, yeah I love that. That's good. I love that. As a, that will be it. Can be a follow up blog questions, <laughs> and then you can get your movers one Facebook group. Get everyone else to contribute this, and and you know, actually having that out there in the public might be really when there is someone like you. Nearly two I've, years. I've just got a vision now of loads of consultants going. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it around my colleagues. <laughs> this is what they want to know. <laughs> Which is I, the best sex toy? <laughs> I've actually been working with a charity in Teenage Cancer Trust. They work with 13 to 25. So we're trying to make this information also available to as young as 13 because people do start being sexually active at that age. I know because I was one of them. So I think it's important to have access. Another thing, um, I had to actually wait until I was 18 just to have a referral to see a psycho-oncologist. You have to be 18. And I know, I know, Angela, you said that people come to you at 18. Now, I would like to know why it's 18. I honestly think that should be lowered. 
and that's one thing I brought up with my own hospital because uh, they treat because it's a cancer hospital they treat from the age of 16 so because I brought up the question like why did I have to wait a year just for a referral and that's when they decided to work on lowering the age to 16 and I think that's really important that people should not have to wait so the age of 18 to have access to that information or access just to a certain specialist. No, I totally agree. And if you think about, you know, in this day and age, the first exposure to online adult content is usually about 10 or 11. So, you know, somebody might have been, you know, experiencing all sorts of things for quite a number of years before they are able to necessarily get help. Yeah, thank you all so much for being so open. And, you know, I know it's a very difficult thing to talk about. It shouldn't be, as we've, as we've said, but, you know, it can be. And especially when you're talking about your own cancer journey and your own experiences and sharing it with the many listeners that we have, it can be difficult. But I just hope that everyone's learned something. I've learned things. And, you know, anyone who's listening, whether it be a healthcare professional, a patient, a patient's family member, that's important as well, because you could listen to this on behalf of your son or daughter, or, you know, a friend listening regarding their best friend. It's okay to talk about these things. It's not, it shouldn't be a taboo. And, you know, it's absolutely okay, but they are real things and they're real issues and there's still a long way to go. That's okay, because conversations like this are happening. And the more it's spoken about, the better informed people will become, you know, and the better, you know, I suppose just educated people will become because it's all about education and getting the right education for how you can do things safely when you're on treatment, how it's safe for your partner to act around you as well. So I think this episode is great for for anyone really who's listening. Um, And thank you very, very much for taking part in it. And we'll see, well, we'll probably speak to you all again soon because you can't shut us up. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely learned tons from listening to Caitlin, Sophie, Millie and Liam um, talk about their feelings today. Um, It's definitely made me reflect that I need to give my patients more opportunities to discuss sex and relationships and perhaps open the door to conversations around these topics more than I do now. Each time I do a pod, I really am blown away by how much I learn from listening to people talk about their experiences with cancer without being their doctor. Being able to do this really is an utter privilege. I think it's something that very few doctors to do, uh, uh, very few doctors ever get a chance to do. And I genuinely feel I learn more from these episodes than I do from, um, you know, reading any scientific article. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to articulate actually the impact that that um, these conversations have on me as a doctor. Um, what did you take from? this episode I if, if you've got cancer and you've listened I really hope that listening to it has made you feel more able to ask your medical team the questions that you want to about anything and everything no matter how my, how personal you think it might be as Sophie said um doctors have seen everything um <laughs> we're generally uh not put off by anything and I certainly would much rather people ask me a hundred questions than didn't ask one that they really wanted to but were too scared to
Um, do let us know what you thought about the episode. Um, we love hearing from you. We really do love hearing from you. Um, you can obviously, you can get in touch on all forms of social media. Um, as always, if you do have a minute to give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you're using to listen, that really does make a difference. Um, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of the day. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.